Hello, and welcome to Storytime for Grown-Ups. I'm Faith Moore, and this season we're reading Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Each episode, I'll read one chapter from the book, pausing from time to time to give brief explanations so it's easier to follow along. It's like an audiobook with built-in notes. So brew a pot of tea, find a cozy chair, and settle in. It's story time. Hi, welcome back. This is episode seven of Storytime for Grownups. We're going to be reading chapter seven of Jane Eyre today. You know, it's funny, I was joking the other day on X that if Storytime for Grownups had a merch store, the first thing I would put in it is a little teapot for one and a teacup and saucer and maybe a little spoon. And I think that would be great. I don't really know if that's the kind of thing that you can put in a merch store, but I think it would be really cool to have a merch store. Um, you know, that's the kind of thing that down the line, the, if, if we get big enough, those are the kinds of things I'd like to do. Have a merch store, a, a kind of online community where we can chat together and do all of those things. And I think we can get there. I, I believe in us. I hope that you do too. If you're enjoying this show and would like to help us reach more people, the things that you can do are things like telling your friends about the show. It's as easy as that. You can even text them a link to an episode, you know, and just say, I think you'd really like this. And if you could make sure that you're following or subscribed wherever you're listening, that really helps. And give it five stars. Just tap those five stars wherever you're listening. Those are the kinds of things that really can help the show gain more listeners. And then we can have things like teacups in merch stores. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with me, either to ask a question, and I'll get to that in a minute, or just to say hello, you can find me on my website, faithkmore.com. You can click on contact and it goes straight to my email, or you can find me on x at faithkmore. You can send me a DM. Those are always open. Or you can just tweet at me, x at me, and I will get those too. So say hello. Don't be shy. If you're interested in reading any of my books, you can check those out on Amazon. I have two. The first is a work of nonfiction called Saving Cinderella, What Feminists Get Wrong About Disney Princesses and How to Set It Right. And the other is a novel called Christmas Carol, Carol with a K. So again, those are on Amazon. You can check those out there. So I have absolutely been loving your questions. At the beginning of each episode, I answer a question or two from you about the previous chapter. It's a way for us to talk about the book together and also to kind of remind ourselves what was going on in the previous chapter before we start the next one. And just keep those questions coming. So it's a question or just a comment, something that really interested you that you would like to talk about further. You can also write in to respond to something I said in an answer. So if someone asked a question, I answered it, and that brought up something for you, you can let me know about that too. And that's a way we can have an ongoing conversation as these episodes continue. And again, you can ask those by contacting me on my website, faithkmore.com, or finding me on x at faithkmore. So I got one question today that I would like to answer. But before I do that, let's recap what went on in chapter six to help us better understand this question. Where we left off, Jane has discovered that the girl she met in the veranda and talked to about the book, Rasselas, and, and asked questions to about the school is a pupil named Helen Burns. And Helen is always being punished, particularly by a teacher named Miss Scatcherd, for sort of daydreaming or being untidy. And Jane even watched 
Burns, Helen Burns, get flogged, get beaten um, in the last chapter. And Jane is incredibly filled with indignation and anger that Helen should be treated this way. And But Helen accepts it as just sort of par for the course because she feels like, yeah, that's who she is. She's someone who who deserves that kind of punishment. And she and Jane had a, a back and forth in the last chapter about their natures, about how Jane is kind of passionate and impulsive and impetuous, and Helen is much more circumspect and and believes that her life to come is what's important, not her life here on Earth. And they kind of had a little dialogue about that last time. So the last chapter was really about Jane and Helen meeting and their relationship and their two very different personalities. Okay, so today's question comes to us from Lydia. Lydia writes, do you think there actually were children that young who were that verbally proficient? Or did Charlotte help them out some, the way most authors make their heroes or heroines exceptional, even though, or possibly because, it is somewhat unrealistic? Okay, so this question is referencing that conversation that I was just talking about between Jane and Helen in the last chapter, where they're both kind of laying out their worldviews and talking about the way that they each relate to the world. And Lydia is commenting that this feels kind of unrealistic for children to be able to do, that that children today probably wouldn't be able to talk in this way with each other. And so the question is, could children in Victorian England speak like this? Was this normal? Or is this something that Charlotte Bronte is doing? Is she giving them these words and these ideas as a kind of conceit to forward her own ideas and to forward the plot? So were children much more precocious in the Victorian era than they were now is basically the question. And it's a great question. So I'm going to start by saying that just like now, every child in the Victorian era was probably different and developed differently. No two children are alike. And so even today, some kids are really precocious and maybe speak in a much more formal way than other kids do. So we can't really say that something is true for all children at the time, just like we couldn't say it is true for children, all children today. But I think we can make certain generalizations that might help us conceptualize this a little bit more. So children at the time were expected to be much more like adults than children are today. They were expected to take on adult responsibilities in a way that kids are not now. So in cities, kids would work in factories. It was just beginning to be a notion that perhaps children shouldn't have to work under the same extreme conditions that adults were. So children were working in factories and other industrial situations in cities, but even in the home, if they weren't going out to work outside of the home, even in the home, children were given much more adult chores to do. They were expected to care for sick relatives and things like that. So they were given more adult tasks, which probably made them seem more adult than children today. There were also more strict rules in general about children's behavior, you know, they were expected to, you know, sort of be seen and not heard, they would dress formally for company, they would be expected to know how to behave at formal dinners and teas and things like that. They were really expected to behave more like little adults than about today's kids. So this book takes place just at the cusp of a transformation about ideas about childhood. Childhood, right around this time, was coming to be seen as a distinct 
stage rather than just you know these are little adults and they grow up into big adults and so to my mind this all implies that children at the time probably would have seemed more adult to us than children today also consider that all the language in the book feels more quote-unquote grown up to us because it was written in the 1800s and the language is different. It's more formal. It's denser. All of the things that we've been talking about here on the show, all of the notes that I give are because the language is trickier for us now. So putting that kind of language into the mouths of children to us feels much more grown up than perhaps it would have back then. Just another thing to add, of course, is that Bronte is obviously doing something with the dialogue between Jane and Helen. She's introducing us to their different worldviews. Jane is sort of much more of like an eye for an eye kind of worldview, and Helen wants to rise above everything. And this is perhaps giving them more insight than children might have had at the time, because they are putting forward these ideas that come from the adult Charlotte Bronte. I think Jane speaks much more like a child than Helen. Helen is actually older than Jane in the story, and Bronte is very clearly giving Helen a kind of otherworldly quality. So, you know, I think we can't know for sure, but I think Bronte certainly means for them to sound like children, except that she wants to give Helen a bit more of an elevated quality for reasons that I think will become clearer as we go along, and Jane has more of a childlike quality. And so I think kids would have seemed older to us than kids do now if we were to suddenly time travel back to Victorian England. Um, but I, I also think that it's possible that Bronte is giving them a little bit of a more elevated sensibility because she's trying to convey these ideas. So I think it's a bit of both. But that's a great question. And it's really interesting to think about, you know, kids at the time, because we are in this the part of the book that deals with Jane's childhood. So that's today's question. Just remember, you can ask, a, you too can ask a question. Just go to my website, faithkmore.com and click on contact or find me on X at faithkmore. Ask a question, make a comment, respond to something that I said, any of the above. Just keep those questions and comments coming. I love them. Also, don't forget to give the show five stars and follow or subscribe wherever you're listening. Let's get the word out there about Storytime for Grownups. All right, let's get started with chapter seven. It's story time. Chapter 7 My first quarter at Lowood seemed an age, and not the golden age either. It comprised an irksome struggle with difficulties in habituating myself to new rules and unwanted tasks. The fear of failure in these points harassed me worse than the physical hardships of my lot, though these were no trifles. She's finding it difficult to settle in at Lowood. The work is unusual and strange to her, and it's cold and she doesn't get enough food. During January, February, and part of March, the deep snows and, after their melting, the almost impassable roads prevented our stirring beyond the garden walls, except to go to church. But within these limits, we had to pass an hour every day in the open air. Our clothing was insufficient to protect us from the severe cold. We had no boots. The snow got into our shoes and melted there. Our ungloved hands became numbed and covered with chillblains, as were our feet. Chillblains are when your skin gets so cold, it gets red and, and it cracks and bleeds. I remember well the distracting irritation I endured from this cause every evening, when my feet inflamed, and the torture of thrusting the swelled raw and stiff toes into my shoes in the morning. 
Then the scanty supply of food was distressing. With the keen appetites of growing children, we had scarcely sufficient to keep alive a delicate invalid. From this deficiency of nourishment resulted an abuse, which pressed hardly on the younger pupils. Whenever the famished great girls had an opportunity, they would coax or menace the little ones out of their portion. Many a time I have shared between two claimants the precious morsel of brown bread distributed at tea time. And after relinquishing to a third half the contents of my mug of coffee, I have swallowed the remainder with an accompaniment of secret tears, forced from me by the exigency of hunger. So they get fed so little that the older girls force the younger girls to give them part of their portion. So then Jane, who is one of the younger girls, gets almost nothing to eat each mealtime. Sundays were dreary days in that wintry season. We had to walk two miles to Brocklebridge Church, where our patron officiated. So Mr. Brocklehurst is the priest at the church. We set out cold. We arrived at church colder. During the morning service, we became almost paralyzed. It was too far to return to dinner, and an allowance of cold meat and bread in the same penurious portion observed in our ordinary meals was served round between the services. So they get to eat in between the two services that they go to, but it's still only a tiny, tiny bit. At the close of the afternoon service, we returned by an exposed and hilly road, where the bitter wind blowing over a range of snowy summits to the north almost flayed the skin from our faces. I can remember Miss Temple walking lightly and rapidly along our drooping line. Her plaid cloak, which the frosty wind fluttered, gathered close about her, and encouraging us, by precept and example, to keep up our spirits and march forward, as she said, like stalwart soldiers. The other teachers, poor things, were generally themselves too much dejected to attempt the task of cheering others. How we longed for the light and heat of a blazing fire when we got back. But to the little ones, at least, this was denied. Each hearth in the schoolroom was immediately surrounded by a double row of great girls, and behind them the younger children crouched in groups, wrapping their starved arms in their pinafores. A little solace came at tea time, in the shape of a double ration of bread, a whole instead of a half slice, with the delicious addition of a thin scrape of butter. It was the hebdomadal treat to which we all looked forward from Sabbath to Sabbath. Hebdomadal just means weekly, so they look forward to this tiny bit of extra food every week. I generally contrive to reserve my moiety of this bounteous repast for myself, but the remainder I was invariably obliged to part with. Moiety means just a small part, so she keeps a little bit of food for herself, but she's forced to give the rest to the older girls. The Sunday evening was spent in repeating, by heart, the church catechism, and the fifth, sixth, and seventh chapters of St. Matthew, and in listening to a long sermon read by Miss Miller, whose irrepressible yawns attested her weariness. A frequent interlude of these performances was the enactment of the part of Eutychus by some half-dozen little girls, who, overpowered with sleep, would fall down, if not out of the third loft, yet off the fourth form, and be taken up half-dead. Eutychus is a man in the Bible who fell asleep during a long talk that was given by St. Paul and fell out of a window and died, but then was embraced by St. Paul and came back to life. So Jane's saying that these little girls on Sundays, after all of this horrible walking in the snow and back and forth to church, are so tired that they fall not out the window, but off of the forms, the benches, and then they have to be propped up. The remedy was to thrust them forward into the center of the schoolroom and oblige them to stand there till the sermon was finished. Sometimes their feet failed them, and they sank together in a heap. They were then propped up with the monitor's high stools. 
I have not yet alluded to the visits of Mr. Brocklehurst, and indeed that gentleman was from home during the greater part of the first month after my arrival, perhaps prolonging his stay with his friend, the Archdeacon. His absence was a relief to me. I need not say that I had my own reasons for dreading his coming, but he did come at last. One afternoon, I had been there three weeks at Lowood, as I was sitting with a slate in my hand, puzzling over a sum in long division, my eyes raised in abstraction to the window, caught sight of a figure just passing. I recognized almost instinctively that gaunt outline, and when two minutes after all the school, teachers included, rose en masse, it was not necessary for me to look up in order to ascertain whose entrance they thus greeted. A long stride measured the schoolroom, and presently, beside Miss Temple, who herself had risen, stood the same black column which had frowned on me so ominously from the hearthrug of Gateshead. I now glanced sideways at this piece of architecture. Yes, I was right. It was Mr. Brocklehurst, buttoned up in a surtout, which is like a man's overcoat, and looking longer, narrower, and more rigid than ever. I had my own reasons for being dismayed at this apparition. Too well I remembered the perfidious hints given by Mrs. Reed about my disposition, etc., the promise pledged by Mr. Brocklehurst to apprise Miss Temple and the teachers of my vicious nature. All along I had been dreading the fulfillment of this promise. I had been looking out daily for the coming man, whose information respecting my past life and conversation was to brand me as a bad child forever. Now there he was. He stood at Miss Temple's side. He was speaking low in her ear. I did not doubt he was making disclosures of my villainy, and I watched her eye with painful anxiety, expecting every moment to see its dark orb turn on me, a glance of repugnance and contempt. I listened, too, and as I happened to be seated quite at the top of the room, I caught most of what he said. Its import relieved me from immediate apprehension. What he's saying makes her feel relieved because it's not about her right now. I suppose, Miss Temple, the thread I bought at Lowton will do. It struck me that it would be just the quality for the calico chemises, and I sorted the needles to match. You may tell Miss Smith that I forgot to make a memorandum of the darning needles, but she shall have some papers sent in next week. And she is not, on any account, to give out more than one at a time to each pupil. If they have more, they are apt to be careless and lose them. And, oh, ma'am, I wish the woolen stockings were better looked to. When I was here last, I went into the kitchen garden and examined the clothes drying on the line. There was a quantity of black hose in a very bad state of repair. From the size of the holes in them, I am sure they had not been well mended from time to time. He paused. Your directions shall be attended to, sir, said Miss Temple. And, ma'am, he continued, the laundress tells me some of the girls have two clean tuckers in the week. It is too much. The rules limit them to one. I think I can explain that circumstance, sir. Agnes and Catherine Johnston were invited to take tea with some friends at Lowton last Thursday, and I gave them leave to put on clean tuckers for the occasion. Mr. Brocklehurst nodded. Well, for once it may pass, but please not to let the circumstance occur too often. And there is another thing which surprises me. I find, in settling accounts with the housekeeper, that a lunch consisting of bread and cheese has twice been served out to the girls during the past fortnight. How is this? I looked over the regulations, and I find no such meal as lunch mentioned. Who introduced this innovation, and by what authority? 
Mr. Brocklehurst is, is combing over every tiny detail of what's going on at the school and every tiny deviation from the rules and expressing his disapproval that the girls are getting anything extra. I must be responsible for the circumstance, sir, replied Miss Temple. The breakfast was so ill-prepared that the pupils could not possibly eat it, and I dared not allow them to remain fasting till dinner time. Madam, allow me an instant. You are aware that my plan in bringing up these girls is not to accustom them to habits of luxury and indulgence, but to render them hardy, patient, self-denying. Should any little accidental disappointment of the appetite occur, such as the spoiling of a meal, the under or the overdressing of a dish, the incident ought not to be neutralized by replacing with something more delicate the comfort lost, thus pampering the body and obviating the aim of this institution. It ought to be improved to the spiritual edification of the pupils by encouraging them to evince fortitude under the temporary privation. So he's saying that if something goes wrong, like the, the food is spoiled, then the girls should be encouraged to be strong and go without it because this will improve their spiritual education. So they shouldn't be given anything extra if they can't eat the food. A brief address on those occasions would not be mistimed, wherein a judicious instructor would take the opportunity of referring to the sufferings of the primitive Christians, to the torments of martyrs, to the exhortations of our blessed Lord himself, calling upon his disciples to take up their cross and follow him, to his warnings that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, to his divine consolations. If ye suffer hunger or thirst for my sake, happy are ye. Oh, madam, when you put bread and cheese instead of burnt porridge into these children's mouths, you may indeed feed their vile body, but you little think how you starve their immortal souls. So Mr. Brocklehurst is using scripture to justify his position that the girls should have the very, very least possible, so just enough to keep them alive, essentially. And Miss Temple disagrees, and the girls would disagree, and Jane disagrees, but Mr. Brocklehurst's position is that the girls should be brought up on the very, very, very bare minimum, and that this will help them understand their place in the world. Mr. Brocklehurst again paused, perhaps overcome by his feelings. Miss Temple had looked down when he first began to speak to her, but she now gazed straight before her. Her face, naturally pale as marble, appeared to be assuming also the coldness and fixity of that material, especially her mouth, closed as if it would have required a sculptor's chisel to open it, and her brow settled gradually into petrified severity. Meantime, Mr. Brocklehurst, standing at the hearth with his hands behind his back, majestically surveyed the whole school. Suddenly, his eye gave a blink, as if it had met something that either dazzled or shocked its pupil. Turning, he said in more rapid accents that he had hitherto used, Miss Temple, Miss Temple, what, what is that girl with curled hair? Red hair, ma'am, curled, curled all over. And extending his cane, he pointed to the awful object, his hand shaking as he did so. It is Julia Severn, replied Miss Temple very quietly. Julia Severn, ma'am? And why has she, or any other, curled hair? 
Why, in defiance of every precept and principle of this house, does she conform to the world so openly here in an evangelical charitable establishment as to wear her hair one mass of curls? Julia's hair curls naturally, returned Miss Temple, still more quietly. Naturally, yes, but we are not to conform to nature. I wish these girls to be the children of grace. And why that abundance? I have again and again intimated that I desire the hair to be arranged closely, modestly, plainly. Miss Temple, that girl's hair must be cut off entirely. I will send a barber tomorrow, and I see others who have far too much of the execrescence. Execrescence means a strange outgrowth of something. So he's saying that the longer hair is some kind of abnormality and it must be cut off. That tall girl, tell her to turn round. Tell all the first form to rise up and direct their faces to the wall. Miss Temple passed her handkerchief over her lips as if to smooth away the involuntary smile that curled them. She gave the order, however, and when the first class could take in what was required of them, they obeyed. Leaning a little back on my bench, I could see the looks and grimaces with which they commented on this maneuver. It was a pity Mr. Brocklehurst could not see them too. He would perhaps have felt that whatever he might do with the outside of the cup and platter, the inside was further beyond his interference than he imagined. So the girls will obey, but they're giving each other looks that show that they don't like it. So he might be able to do something to the outside of them, but he can't, he can't break them. He scrutinized the reverse of these living metals some five minutes, then pronounced sentence. These words fell like the knell of doom. All those top knots must be cut off. Miss Temple seemed to remonstrate. Madam, he pursued, I have a master to serve whose kingdom is not of this world. My mission is to mortify in these girls the lusts of the flesh to teach them to clothe themselves with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided hair and costly apparel. And each of the young persons before us has a string of hair, twisted in plaits, plaits or braids, which vanity itself might have woven. These, I repeat, must be cut off. Think of the time wasted, of... Mr. Brocklehurst was here interrupted. Three other visitors, ladies, now entered the room. They ought to have come a little sooner to have heard his lecture on dress, for they were splendidly attired in velvet, silk, and furs. The two younger of the trio, fine girls of sixteen and seventeen, had grey beaver hats, then in fashion, shaded with ostrich plumes, and from under the brim of this graceful headdress fell a profusion of light tresses, so hair, elaborately curled. The elder lady was enveloped in a costly velvet shawl, trimmed with ermine, and she wore a false front of French curls. So at the exact moment that Mr. Brocklehurst is talking about how it's godly for girls to nearly starve and not have enough clothes to keep them warm and cut off all their hair, these women come in with tons of curls and warm hats and velvet dresses. These ladies were deferentially received by Miss Temple as Mrs. and the Mrs. Brocklehurst. So it's Mrs. Brocklehurst, meaning Mr. Brocklehurst's wife, and the Mrs., meaning two people who we're calling Miss, so two Misses, Brocklehurst. So it's Mr. Brocklehurst's wife and his two daughters are the ladies that have come into the room and conducted to seats of honor at the top of the room. It seems they had come in the carriage with their reverend relative and had been conducting a rubbaging scrutiny of the rooms upstairs. 
while he transacted business with the housekeeper, questioned the laundress, and lectured the superintendent. They now proceeded to address diverse remarks and reproofs to Miss Smith, who was charged with the care of the linen and the inspection of the dormitories. But I had no time to listen to what they said. Other matters called off and enchanted my attention. So Mr. Brocklehurst's wife and daughters have also been kind of looking around the school and finding all these faults, and now they want to talk about all the problems that they're seeing with the school. But also notice, of course, that Mr. Brocklehurst just got finished talking about how women and girls should be you know, modest and not have any hair and not wear fancy clothes. And But his own family is dressed very elaborately and expensively. So obviously we are meant to feel that Mr. Brocklehurst is a hypocrite. Hitherto, while gathering up the discourse of Mr. Brocklehurst and Miss Temple, I had not at the same time neglected precautions to secure my personal safety, which I thought would be affected if I could only elude observation. So if nobody sees her, then nobody can say anything about her. To this end, I had sat well back on the form, and while seeming to be busy with my sum, had held my slate in such a manner as to conceal my face. So her slate is like a little chalkboard that she's working on math equations on. So she's holding it up in front of her face, so hopefully no one will see her. I might have escaped notice had not my treacherous slate somehow happened to slip from my hand, and falling with an obtrusive crash directly drawn every eye upon me. I knew it was all over now. And as I stooped to pick up the two fragments of slate, I rallied my forces for the worst. It came. A careless girl, said Mr. Brocklehurst. And immediately after, it is the new pupil I perceive. And before I could draw breath, I must not forget I have a word to say respecting her. Then aloud, how loud it seemed to me, let the child who broke her slate come forward. Of my own accord, I could not have stirred. I was paralyzed. But the two great girls who sat on each side of me set me on my legs and pushed me towards the dread judge. And then Miss Temple gently assisted me to his very feet, and I caught her whispered counsel. Don't be afraid, Jane. I saw it was an accident. You shall not be punished. The kind whisper went to my heart like a dagger. Another minute and she will despise me for a hypocrite, thought I and an impulse of fury against Reed, Brocklehurst, and co. bounded in my pulses at the conviction. I was no Helen Burns. Fetch that stool, said Mr. Brocklehurst, pointing to a very high one from which a monitor had just risen. It was brought. Place the child upon it. And I was placed there, by whom I don't know. I was in no condition to note particulars. I was only aware that they had hoisted me up to the height of Mr. Brocklehurst's nose, that he was within a yard of me, and that a spread of shot orange and purple silk pelises and a cloud of silvery plumage extended and waved below me. She's standing on a high stool and the Brocklehurst ladies are down below her. Mr. Brocklehurst hemmed. Ladies, he said, turning to his family. Miss Temple, teachers and children, you all see this girl? Of course they did for I felt their eyes directed like burning glasses against my scorched skin. You see she is yet young. You observe she possesses the ordinary form of childhood. God has graciously given her the shape that he has given to all of us. No signal deformity points her out as a marked character. Who would think that the evil one had already found a servant and agent in her? Yet such, I grieve to say, 
is the case. A pause in which I began to steady the palsy of my nerves, and to feel that the Rubicon was passed, and that the trial, no longer to be shirked, must be firmly sustained. So she's been worried about this for so long that it's almost a relief that it's now happening, and now she just has to endure it instead of wondering when it will happen. My dear children, pursued the black marble clergyman with pathos, this is a sad, a melancholy occasion. For it becomes my duty to warn you that this girl, who might be one of God's own lambs, is a little castaway. Not a member of the true flock, but evidently an interloper and an alien. You must be on your guard against her. You must shun her example. If necessary, avoid her company. Exclude her from your sports and shut her out from your converse. Teachers, you must watch her. Keep your eyes on her movements, weigh well her words, scrutinize her actions, punish her body to save her soul. If, indeed, such salvation be possible, for my tongue falters while I tell it, this girl, this child, the native of a Christian land, worse than many a little heathen who says its prayers to Brahma and kneels before Juggernaut, this girl is a liar. Now came a pause of ten minutes, during which I, by this time in perfect possession of my wits, observed all the female Brocklehursts produce their pocket handkerchiefs and apply them to their optics, while the elderly lady swayed herself to and fro and the younger ones whispered, How shocking! Mr. Brocklehurst resumed. This I learned from her benefactress, from the pious and charitable lady who adopted her in her orphan state, reared her as her own daughter, and whose kindness, whose generosity the unhappy girl repaid by an ingratitude so bad, so dreadful, that at last her excellent patroness was obliged to separate her from her own young ones fearful lest her vicious example should contaminate their purity. She has sent her here to be healed, even as the Jews of old sent their disease to the troubled pool of Bethesda. And teachers, superintendent, I beg of you not to allow the waters to stagnate around her. With this sublime conclusion, Mr. Brocklehurst adjusted the top button of his surtout, muttered something to his family, who rose, bowed to Miss Temple, and then all the great people sailed in state from the room. Turning at the door, my judge said, Let her stand half an hour longer on that stool and let no one speak to her during the remainder of the day. There was I then, mounted aloft. Who had said I could not bear the shame of standing on my natural feet in the middle of the room was now exposed to general view on a pedestal of infamy. So she had said when she saw Helen standing up there that she wouldn't be able to endure it, and now here she is having to endure it. What my sensations were, no language can describe. But just as they all rose, stifling my breath and constricting my throat, a girl came up and passed me. In passing, she lifted her eyes. What a strange light inspired them. What an extraordinary sensation that ray sent through me. How the new feeling bore me up. It was as if a martyr, a hero, had passed a slave or victim and imparted strength in the transit. I mastered the rising hysteria, 
lifted up my head and took a firm stand on the stool. Helen Burns asked some slight question about her work of Miss Smith, was chidden for the triviality of the inquiry, returned to her place and smiled at me as she again went by. So Helen Burns risked another scolding just so that she could walk by Jane and, and look at her so that she knew that she wasn't alone. What a smile. I remember it now and I know that it was the effluence of fine intellect, of true courage. It lit up her marked lineaments, her thin face, her sunken gray eye, like a reflection from the aspect of an angel. Yet at that moment, Helen Burns wore on her arm the untidy badge. Scarcely an hour ago, I had heard her condemned by Miss Scatcherd to a dinner of bread and water on the morrow because she had blotted an exercise in copying it out. Such is the imperfect nature of man. Such spots are there on the disk of the clearest planet. And eyes like Miss Scatcherd's can only see those minute defects and are blind to the full brightness of the orb. Thank you so much for listening. I'd love to know what you thought of the chapter. Is there anything you'd like me to clarify? Did something particularly interest you? Please go to my website, faithkmore.com, click on contact and send me your questions and thoughts. Or you can click on the link in the show notes to contact me. I'll feature one or two of your entries at the start of the next episode. Before I go, I'd like to ask a quick favor. This is an independent podcast. It's produced, recorded, and marketed by me. So I need your help. Please share this podcast with your friends. Post about it on social media. If you're studying literature at school, tell your teacher and your classmates about it. Talk about it in the break room at work. And if you could, please subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. I would really, really appreciate it. All right, everyone. Story time is over. To be continued. Thank you.